Please turn with me to the Gospel of John, John chapter 7, and I'll be reading verses 25 through 31. John chapter 7, verses 25 through 31. Hear the word of God. John chapter 7, beginning at verse 25. Now some of them from Jerusalem said, Is this not he whom they seek to kill? But look, he speaks boldly, and they say nothing to him. Do the rulers know indeed that this is truly the Christ? However, we know where this man is from. But when the Christ comes, no one knows where he is from. Then Jesus cried out as he taught in the temple, saying, You both know me, and you know where I am from. And I have not come of myself, but he who sent me is true, whom you do not know. But I know him, for I am from him, and he sent me. Therefore they sought to take him, but no one laid a hand on him, because his hour had not yet come. And many of the people believed in him and said, When the Christ comes, will he do more signs than these which this man has done? Amen. We've seen so far in this chapter that Jesus came to do the Father's will, not his own will. He didn't come to seek his own glory. We see this in particular with his inter- when he interacts with his brothers. And they tell him, hey, go up to the city. Uh, go go uh, with us to this feast and preach. Uh, you know, come in our caravan. We'll sort of, you know, we'll hold you on our shoulders and we'll bring you up there so that you could have great fanfare and make yourself a spectacle. And Jesus says to them, my time has not yet fully come. It's not time for that. Not only did he come to do the Father's will, to seek glory for the Father, but he also came to teach the Father's word, to teach the Father's will. So he says in verse 16, My doctrine is not mine, but his who sent me. And now what we see, as Jesus continues to press this truth, is um, that his exposing of religious hypocrisy, which is verses 20 and following. Remember, he, he exposed the people's religious hypocrisy there. They have uh, circumcision, which they received from the fathers, and they circumcise children. If, if Sabbath, Saturday for them, is the eighth day, well then, they must circumcise that child on Sunday. But Jesus heals a man completely, and they're up in arms. So he exposes their religious hypocrisy. And now this this exposing religious hypocrisy leads to religious awakening, spiritual awakening. It opens the eyes of people. And this is what Jesus is doing throughout all of his ministry. He is he's come to do God's will. He's, he has come to 
preach God's will. He has come to unmask religious hypocrites. And as he's doing this, people are starting to believe. Look at how it begins here. Now some of them from Jerusalem said, Is this not he whom they seek to kill? But look, he speaks boldly, and they say nothing to him. Do the rulers know, indeed, that this is truly the Christ? Christ's boldness to confront or in confronting the religious leaders' hypocrisy leads to the people's leads the people to question their religious leaders' motives. They, they had just said to Jesus in verse 20, the religious leaders, or the people, you have a demon who is seeking to kill you. And now they say, is this not he whom they seek to kill? You see their hypocrisy? They knew exactly what was going on. Here is another example, humility of our Savior. Uh, Jesus had to endure great humiliation when he came into this world. They had just accused him of having a demon for exposing their murderous hearts. And back then, uh, during, during this period of time, whenever somebody had uh, some mental issue, they would attribute it to some kind of demon possession. Remember, in the Gospel of Mark, Jesus' mother and brothers and sisters come to look for him, and they think he's gone crazy. That's the accusation that they make. He is mentally stable. They were mocking Jesus in verse 20. And now... After such a display of confidence in the doctrine he teaches, they tell on themselves. They hear this man preach, and they, and they realize, kind of talking amongst each other, why is nobody, why aren't the religious leaders doing anything? That this really does display Jesus' willingness to uh, endure whatever was necessary to accomplish his Father's will. Their question here doesn't indicate at all that the religious leaders were believing. They're just shocked at their leader's cowardice. They're not doing anything to him. And he's here preaching and teaching. This kind of, this boldness, this willingness to stand upon the truth of God's word was impressive. The people are taken back by it. Look. Not only is it impressive, it was confrontational. Jesus addressed the people directly. Jesus, Jesus didn't constantly sidestep and come around. He said exactly what he had to say to the people. He never minced words with them. He was honest. And this is what the preaching of the word is intended to do. 
Jesus' teaching is intended to challenge the way that you think, particularly the way that you hem. You know, if you if you come to church and uh, the preacher is just telling you things that you already know, or maybe uh, not just telling you things that are that you already know, but preaching the truth in such a way where there is no effect, that there there is no impact to your life. It, it's completely irrelevant to where you live and to what you're doing. He's of no help to you. Yet, as Christians, we should not be surprised when unbelievers are challenged and even frustrated or maybe surprised by Christ's person, His work, and His doctrine. When we talk to unbelievers about Jesus, there should be a sense of amazement. And it may not always be good amazement. There's something important about this particular section that we'll pick up later in verse 45. And it's this. Look at verse... Uh, so the, the leaders don't apprehend him. They make that point. Now look at verse 30. They sought to take him, but no one laid a hand on him because his hour had not yet come. Look at verse 43. So there was a division among the people because of him. Now some of them wanted to take him, but no one laid hands on him. Now look at verse 45. Then the officers came to the chief priests and Pharisees who said to them, Why have you not brought him? The officers answered, No one ever spoke like this man. There, there, there was... The, the power of God was at work in the ministry of Jesus. And Jesus was so preserved and protected by God that what he came into the world to accomplish, he would definitely accomplish it. These passages like this, they teach us to note the works of God. God was, was doing something to preserve, to protect his son so that his son could accomplish his purpose in this world. And, you know, I would turn to your, your attention to uh, God's special hand of providence upon this little church. The existence of this little church and its prosperity is God's hand. There are very small things in the gospel like this, our Bibles, that we read and we sort of just, we overlook it. And then we do that in our own lives. God's special providences, His protection and His provision over us, we overlook those things. But they are actually really grand and powerful displays of God's might. And given everything 
that this church had gone through, and even the difficulties that we have, we have gone through together, this little church shouldn't be here. But in God's kindness and grace and power, He continues to preserve us. And we should note that. We should note that. So, because of Jesus' preaching, because of the way that He proclaimed the Word, the people are in awe. Yet, note this. Their skepticism remains. Their skepticism remains. Verse 27. And it's particularly tied to their religious tradition. They see the, see the religious leaders. Nobody's doing anything to this guy. He's here preaching. And he's speaking boldly. Nobody does anything to him. Could they know that he is the Christ? Now... Uh, of course, they they, uh, they didn't mean that. They're just surprised at the way that the leaders acted. Now, verse 27, note what they say. However, we know where this man is from. But when the Christ comes, no one knows where he is from. You know, we, we live at such a point in history where we could say it this way. We could say that secular traditions and doctrines keep people from knowing Christ. But so do religious traditions and doctrines. And we need to be very cautious of the kinds of traditions, particularly here, this is a doctrinal tradition, the kind of doctrinal traditions that we adopt. So, for example, you know, when I was a kid, my mom, uh, uh, my family, we were Catholic. We never went to church, but we were Catholic. And my mom had this, this uh, picture of Jesus, and it was the woodcut glazed over Jesus with his heart in the center of his chest and his hand, you know, he's like this, and he's looking off who knows where. <laughs> and, be, you know, this may not seem like a like a really big thing, but when I was little, I really thought that's how Jesus looked. He was a blonde, white guy. A rather innocent mistake, right? But that was a tradition, right? That was engraved. And those uh, traditions like that, religious traditions, and again, in the world that we live in, secular traditions, because there are people now who don't know a lick about the Bible or anything about Christ, those things influence our ability to understand the gospel. Even when Christ was standing right in front of these men and women, preaching the truth, the religious leaders are, are basically uh, shocked into fear because of his boldness, and the people still themselves object. This can't be him, because no one knows where the Christ will come from. Basically, what they're communicating is a Jewish tradition. And it's the idea that the origins of the Messiah were a mystery. Uh, in the Old Testament, um, you have the coming of the Anointed One, the Messiah. 
Yet you also have texts that speak of the Son of Man and other passages that speak of the suffering servant. We don't have time to look at all of these kinds of passages, but think of the Davidic covenant. That's the promise of the Messiah, the anointed one. You think of Isaiah chapter 53. That's an example of the suffering servant. And you think of Daniel chapter 7 as a picture of the Son of Man. And Jewish traditions would actually separate them or maybe mingle them together in some way. There was a lack of clarity. And even after Jesus' time, there was this lack of clarity, this misunderstanding. So, for example, one rabbi wrote this. He said, three come unaware or without us knowing. The Messiah, a found article, and a scorpion. So a found article, what, what he meant by that was some special providence, some kindness of God where we find something. But we're not expecting that, you know. Let's say you're uh, taking a walk in the park and you find a $20 bill and, and nobody's around. You weren't expecting that. That's not why you went into the woods. And if it was, you've got other problems. <laughs> you, you've got problems. But, but uh, it, it, um, it, you're unaware of it. Or when something bad happens, right? So um, you pack everybody into the car. You crank the engine, and you start driving, and you have a flat tire. These are not things that you expect. If you knew the flat tire was coming, you would have gone another way or whatever it is. But this was part of their tradition. They misunderstood. But it's plainly clear in the Bible that they would know where the Messiah came from. So, for example... In Matthew chapter 2, what happens? Jesus is born in Bethlehem of Judah, and then King Herod calls, uh, oh, oh, um, excuse me, the wise men of the east, they come to Jerusalem. And what do they ask? Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? This is from verse 2, chapter, chapter 2, verse 2. And they say, for we have seen his star and have come to worship him. Now, Herod hears this, and the religious leaders and everybody in Jerusalem, they're afraid. Greatly troubled is what it says. And there was some challenge now to Herod's kingship over the people. So he gathers the chief priests, the scribes of the people, he gathers them all together, and he inquires of them where the Christ was to be born. And what do they say? We don't know. They don't quote some rabbi. They don't say, these three things we don't know. No. They tell him, in Bethlehem of Judah, of Judea, for thus it is written by the prophet Micah. But you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are not the least among the rulers of Judah, for out of you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. The king and shepherd of God's people was the Messiah. That's everywhere in the Old Testament. So they actually knew. They actually knew where he was from. This kind of stubborn religious traditionalism kept them from embracing the Christ that was standing right in front of them. And this happens to many people today. Right? They grow up in a tradition right, of... of uh, you know, what is now technically called uh, easy believism, you know? And then the, these distinctions are made. Uh, Jesus is Lord and Jesus is Savior. 
But then the Jesus of the Bible, they don't really know who he is. Because when he is proposed to them, when he is presented to them, when he's shown to them, he's, it, it doesn't seem like the Jesus I've inherited from my religious upbringing. Well, that's because he's not the Jesus of the Bible. And there are many other traditions like that. Look at verse 40 of chapter 7. Verse 40. This is, this is amazing. And this is absolutely astounding. Therefore, many from the crowd, when they heard this saying, said, truly, this is the prophet. Others, this is the Christ. But some said, will the Christ come out of Galilee? Has not the scripture said that the Christ comes from the seed of David and from the town of Bethlehem where David was? Well, they just finished saying that they don't know where the Messiah comes from. But now they just basically cite the text from Micah. And, and um, it's because they're, they're so blind to their traditions that they will not credit to Christ his office. It was clear from the Old Testament that the Messiah's glory would be veiled. Right? Maybe their objection is, well, he's not this you know, very flashy, powerful king. But it was clear. So, Isaiah 53, verse 2, right? He shall grow up before him a tender plant, and as a root out of dry ground, he has no form of comeliness, and when we see him, there is no beauty that we should desire him. So his glory was definitely veiled. But if they had done even just a little bit of, of inquiry, you know, because they're, they're excessively nosy. We know you and we know where you're from is what they say to Jesus. If they would have done just a little bit of inquiry, at this time the Jews kept meticulous birth records. Where does his uh, uh, stepfather Joseph go? To Bethlehem. Why? Because there was a census and he had to go there because he was of the tribe of Judah. But so was his mother. They could have known if they'd done a little bit of work and that's exactly where many are today. You could know more of Christ and of Christ's ways if you took the time to study the Scriptures. And some of those inconsistencies in your own thinking about Christ would be dispelled. Jesus' Jesus's critics occasionally disbelieve Him and they, um, this is a quote from a commentator. He writes, Jesus' critics occasionally disbelieve him on contrary grounds. The only thing that unites them is their opposition to him. In other words, people use whatever arguments are necessary to achieve their predetermined conclusion. This, or so, uh, uh, not a reference to Jesus per se, but people will say things like, I don't trust the Bible because it was written by men. Right? But they'll trust science books and newspapers and news broadcasters. Well, aren't those men? Right? Right? It doesn't matter. 
and this is the truth that we have to remember. The truth is this, is that the carnal mind is at enmity with God. That's what Paul tells us. There's a hostility in the carnal mind that refuses to receive the truth from God. The unbeliever only looks to one thing, and it's this. How can I keep not believing? It's easy to fall into this trap even now. You can fall into this trap by thinking this, Christianity, faith in Christ, is not the way to peace with God. You could think that way. Now, you may not express it like that, but everyone is looking for something in this world. Right? It's, it's very few people that live aimlessly. And even people who live aimlessly, they're just not telling you what they really want. But really, the goal of man after the fall ought to be a pursuit of peace with their God. And what people trick themselves into believing is that the world, the flesh, the devil... And again, they don't say it like this. But these are going to dictate the way that I find peace in this world. What, what is the world promoting now? What, 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 you know, what is it that's out there that the world is saying is going to bring me joy and peace? Because that's what I need to go after. Or what do I really want in my flesh? What are the things that make me happy? That's what I'm going to pursue. But this is absolute folly. Because what you're doing is you're enslaving yourself more and more to this carnal way of thinking. For the Christian, what we must do is we must not be ignorant of Christ. We must know Him. We, we, we must grow in our knowledge of who He is, who, who Christ was, what He said what He did for us, and how He continues to bestow blessings upon us to protect us as our King. We must grow in our knowledge of these things. The longer we've been Christians, the more we should know of Him. It's like this in every relationship. But then on the other hand, this is something that we have to be trained to do uh, when we're dealing with unbelievers. And look at 2 Corinthians. I'm just going to read the passage. Second Corinthians 10, verses 3 through 6. Look at how Paul puts this. Because this is exactly what Jesus is doing here. And this is what we must also do as believers. Even with ourselves, right? We have to do these things sometimes with ourselves, with our own ways of thinking. Paul puts it this way. For though we walk in the flesh, we do not war according to the flesh. I think that's not the issue. The issue is not the... The, the, uh, the issue is not the individual per se as a person. 
Because that's not where the fight is. And why do we know that that's not where the fight is? Because when you get converted, God doesn't give you an AK-47. Although we would, you know, some people might really like that. God gives us particular weapons for our warfare. For the weapons of our warfare are not carnal. That's why we know we're not fighting a physical battle. Because the weapons God gives us aren't physical. He gives us spiritual weapons. And look at what those... Now look at the quality of those weapons. But mighty in God for pulling down strongholds. And that's what happened with these people. They had some, some conception of what the Messiah ought to have been, and Jesus didn't meet, in their minds, that criteria. There was some stronghold that had to be taken down. And how do you do this? He says, casting down arguments... And every high thing that, is, that exalts itself against the knowledge of God. Bringing every thought captive into captivity to obedience of Christ. So that when thoughts are proposed, even in our own minds, that are hostile to who Christ is, we, we, we grab hold of them. We don't just let them rent space in our heads for free. You grab hold of them. And you, uh, as he says here, of course, speaking metaphorically, we punish them, right? We subject them to, the, to biblical analysis. And this is the same thing that we do with our family members and friends and those who God brings into our sphere. When they have objections, we should pray for wisdom so that we can do this. Present the truth as Christ does it. Now look at verse 28 in John 7. Let's turn back to John, verse 28. Jesus now addresses their knowledge about who he is and where he comes from. And he confronts them with the reality that he comes from God. And in so doing, what he's telling them is that he has come to them to reveal who God is. Then Jesus cried out as he taught in the temple, saying, You both know me, and you know where I'm from. And I have not come of myself, but he who sent me is true, whom you do not know. But I know him, for I am from him, and he sent me. Here, here, here you have a, there's a, Jesus is using irony here. What you have in this passage is what they think they know about Jesus and what Jesus knows about Jesus. Notice this. He cries out. There are not many instances where this is used, this particular word is used about Jesus in the Gospels. And this is not just um, that he raised his voice, but this is a loud cry. It signifies that what he's saying is important. Remember, he's in the temple, and there's a feast, so there's a ton of people. And now what he does, he's having this interaction with them after he finished teaching, 
And they, they're making these uh, statements about him. So Jesus now raises his voice. He wants to get everybody's attention. The, this is the same idea when, this, when the, the seraphim cry out, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. Those seraphim want to make sure that everybody who is in that vicinity understands that the one who is sitting upon the throne is the most holy one. This is also the language used of wisdom in Proverbs chapter 1, where wisdom cries out in the street. She's not silent. This is how Christ cried out. And you see, you have this... This is... um, this is such one of those qualities of Christ that is so magnificent. These uh, wicked men, what they're attempting to do is to uh, minimize who Christ is. And he can't really be the Messiah. Right? He's a good teacher, but he's not the Christ. That kind of honor... The, the, uh, he is the Messiah, was owed to him. And what does that do? Does Jesus, uh, because they're talking bad about him, does he turn away and just, I'm going somewhere else? No. He is unimpaired. Because the truth is invincible. The truth that he is proclaiming, what he just finished saying to them a few verses earlier in verse 16, my doctrine is not mine, but his who sent me. The things that he's teaching are so true that he has no need to back down when they're making these false accusations. Christ sees that these men despise him. They hate him. They don't want to give him the honor that he rightfully deserves. But he never turns back. He never turns back. He is, as one commentator put it, unshakingly heroic in his fortitude. As a Christian, this, uh, when we read the Scriptures, and all of the Scriptures are about Christ, this should give us great confidence in Him and hope in Christ. There should be, because of, because of Jesus' disposition about the things that He taught, we should have great confidence and hope in the, in the things that are taught in this Word. You see? It's, it's not because we are mighty and strong, but when we see His confidence in the things that He's teaching, that should fill our, heart with hope, our hearts with hope and with strength. And we should say, the things I believe, are, are, they are absolutely true. Why are they true? Because Christ believed them firmly. When some sin entangles us, and we're, we... Uh, derive some kind of debased pleasure from it. Here's an application of that. Well, How do you apply that? Here's an application. Let's say you get entangled in some sin. 
here, let's say it's not confrontation from outside, but there's an inner turmoil. There's a war that's going on in your heart. And you, but you know that Christ believed the things that he taught with such confidence that he was never shaken, he never wavered in his confidence in the truth he was proclaiming. So some sin entangles us and we derive debased, and we derive debased pleasure from it. Or corrupt thoughts enslave our minds. Confidence, having confidence in who Christ says he is and what he has done for us should help us cast that sin away from us. Hope in him ought to cause us to purify ourselves just as he is pure. And this kind of confidence, this is the way that people who preach ought to preach. We ought to cry out, raise our voices like a trumpet. What Jesus is addressing here as he cries out their supposed knowledge of, of him, their false knowledge. They really didn't know him. And this language is used throughout the Bible. It says that <clears throat> in 1 Samuel 2.12, it says that the sons of Eli were wicked and they didn't know the Lord. What, what does that mean, that they, did, they had no idea who the, Lord, who the Lord was? No, they knew who he was, but they didn't know him, know him. Right? They, they were priests. They knew the rituals and services that were to be offered to God. Yet, they didn't really know God. And here the people are saying, we know him. And Jesus even uses that language. You both know me, but they don't really know him. And that language is used throughout Scripture. Paul puts it this way in Titus 1.16. He says, they profess to know God. But in works, they deny him. This is an amazing thing about our Savior. That as offensive as the crowd is, they just finished calling him crazy, right? In, chapter, in verse 20. And now here, basically, he has, he has no rightful claim to this office of Messiah. But he continues. He continues to press on to declare the truth to them. And for those of you who are sitting here, you, and you may, be, may not even be a Christian, this is what Christ is doing this morning. As often as you reject Christ, He cries out to you even now. He cries out to sinners. And what is he doing? He's declaring himself. He's teaching them who he is. And we believers, we ought to remember that this is our Savior. A prophet sent to declare the word of God. They are absolutely right when they say later on in this chapter, <coughs> this is truly the prophet. They're right. He is the prophet. He is our prophet. Therefore, we must listen to him. So he says to them, so you know me, and you know where I'm from. On the physical level, they did. They, they knew some things about him. He was from, he did. He was raised in Galilee. His mother was Mary. His stepfather was Joseph. 
His brothers and sisters were there. He might have even done some work for them, fixed the table, made a door, some toys for their kids. But on a deeper spiritual level, they did not know him. They did not know that he came from the Father. He came from heaven. And he didn't come from heaven on his own initiative. He came from heaven because his Father sent him. He came to accomplish his Father's will. Now, having, what, what does having, having, uh, having been sent presuppose? Right? He's talking about coming into the world. His sending is ascending into the world, which means that he existed before he was sent into the world. If the people wanted to know why Jesus was doing what he was doing and why he was speaking the way he was speaking, it is because he came from his Father. And they don't know the Father. That's the difficulty. The issue that they're having is that they do not know God. He says it this way, But he who sent me is true, whom you do not know. They don't know him. Do you know him? Do you know the Father? The people have a great deal of hostility towards Jesus. They're ridiculing him and they're reviling him. The Father knew this. The Father knew that this is the way that they would treat his son. In fact, when Peter is preaching in the book of Acts to Jewish believers in the temple, what does he say to them? That the Father preordained, he ordained, he had decreed that the Christ would suffer and die. The Father knew that this was the treatment that his Son would receive. But what is his disposition towards sinners, though? If this is the Father knew these things. Well, listen to Isaiah 19.20. They will cry to the Lord because of the oppressors, and he will send them a Savior, a mighty one, and he will deliver them. When the people were oppressed and enslaved and overpowered by sin, God sent them a defender of body and soul, Jesus Christ. What does that tell us about the Father? That tells us that the Father wills the salvation of His people. He desires that His people will be saved. Now, if, if you want it, so uh, Jesus is using this, this figure, this way of talking where he says that the Father sent him and he knows the Father. There's this intimate knowledge that he has. And he has come into the world to reveal that knowledge to those who are listening to him. If you wanted to learn something, by way of illustration here, if you wanted to learn something, someone would have to teach you. 
So if I, if I wanted to learn how to make the best biscuits and gravy in the Hudson Valley, some man would have to arise from among the people to teach me how to make said biscuits and gravy. <clears throat> and if the people who did not know God wanted to know God, what had to happen? Someone had to come from God to teach them. And the more intimate the knowledge, the clearer picture of the Father they would have. There came a point in history when the Father said, it is not sufficient for prophets to declare who I am. I'm going to send my Son into the world to show them how I, who I am and how I am. And, in particular, my disposition towards them. Jesus knows the Father perfectly. So in John 1.18, right, John writes, No one has ever seen God in a comprehensive way. The only begotten Son who is in the Father's bosom, He has made Him known. This is the one who had an, an eternal, intimate relationship with the Father. And to people who did not know God, but needed to know God, what does the Father do? Does He say, I will cast them away, and I will send them into eternal judgment? He says, no, I'm going to send my Son into the world, that they might know me. Jesus is so bold even to say, no one knows the Father but the Son. You see, there is knowing. A person can say, well, I know. Uh, maybe, maybe I grew up in a Christian home, so I know Christ. But there's knowing Christ. And then there is knowing Christ. Really knowing Him. So, you know, your kids, or maybe if you're in college or, or an adult, right, you can write an essay or a paper, or maybe a newspaper article on the Grand Canyon. Right? You can go to the library, get all your books, research, and you can write an excellent paper on the Grand Canyon, and uh, people could, would actually say, well, he knows or she knows a thing or two about the Grand Canyon. But you can also know the Grand Canyon if you explore the Grand Canyon, if you actually experience the Grand Canyon and all of its beauty and all of its grandeur. And that, that is a knowledge that the person who's just writing about the Grand Canyon doesn't know. Christ from all etern from eternity past had experienced the love of the Father in an intimate relationship, in an unbreakable relationship, in a perfect relationship with the Father. And He comes to reveal who the Father is to the world. That's what He comes to do. Because of His union with the Father, he knows the Father perfectly, and He comes to declare the Father to the world. And because of our union with Him as Christians, because of our faith in Christ, if we have the same confidence in Christ that He has in His Father, now, you know, we say that, right? But you never will, because you're fallen. But this is, you know, this is a way that we talk, right? What I'm saying is, have confidence in what Christ teaches. Believe in Him. Hope in Him. 
Your union as a believer, your union with Christ, unites, unites you to the Father. That is the only way that you can know who the Father is. Is if you believe in Christ. Believe in what He taught. Hope in what He teaches. And then you can have this uh, knowledge of Christ. Of God in Christ. This knowledge that He offered. Verse 30. Therefore they sought to take Him. But no one laid a hand on Him. Because His hour had not yet come. There, there were other people who Jesus had to declare the Father to. In particular, later on, it's going to be the Gentiles when they come. When the Gentiles come, after they come to him, Philip brings them to Jesus, and Jesus says to his disciples, my hour has come. I'm ready to be glorified now. Because Christ's purpose in coming to the world, you see, this discussion that he's having with the Jews to, to borrow Something we read from 1 Corinthians chapter 10. This is an example to us upon whom the ends of the ages have come. This is the way that we can know God now and we can have confidence that we know God. By heeding the words of Christ. And many of the people believed in Him and said, When the Christ comes, will He do more signs than this man has done? And you see how his stance against religious hypocrisy as he continues to declare the truth of God, what does it do? Not only does his exposing religious hypocrisy uh, serve to give us an example of what declaring the truth looks like, but it also leads these people to a spiritual awakening. Their religious customs, the things that uh, kept them from believing, Jesus is just tearing them away. And that is the same thing that he does. So I would encourage all of you to believe in the Lord Jesus. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. And we thank you particularly, particularly this morning for Christ and for his confidence. May we, Lord, come by your spirit to believe in him, to hope in him, and to trust in him. Amen.